0: Hello and welcome to ROI Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 437th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Dr. Seth Moran, principal USGA seismologist at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. And we're going to be talking about Mount St. Helens is not where it's supposed to be. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapital, And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin with, welcome to the show, Seth. Thank you. We call this first segment Farouk Dinarin, and our goal really is just to give our listeners a little background. So we'll start off by having you just talk to us a little bit about what Mount St. Helens is, where it is, and a little bit about the most famous event involved with it, uh, the eruption a few years ago.
1: Yeah, so Mount St. Helens is a volcano in Washington State. It's um, one of a number of volcanoes in the Cascades range that extends from southern British Columbia all the way down to northern California. And the uh, over the last 4,000 years, it has been by far the most frequently active volcano in the Cascade range, the most frequently uh, erupting volcano in the Cascade range. And uh, back in the 1970s, uh, U.S. Geological Survey geologists uh, started looking at the deposits around Mount St. Helens and recognized that it was a, uh, a very frequently erupting volcano and published a, uh, a fairly famous paper at this point uh, around the late 1970s saying that it was the most likely Cascade volcano to erupt again conceivably by the end of the century. And just a couple of years later, uh, it did that. And uh, they, they recognized that it had the potential to erupt very explosively. It had done that fairly recently and in, in its past, as recently as a couple hundred years uh, ago. And uh, so when Mount St. Helens woke up in March of 1980, um, there was already kind of a playbook that geologists had to work with in terms of understanding what could happen at the volcano. And uh, to first order, um, what what they thought could happen uh did happen it just happened in a sort in a fairly big way on may 18th uh the largest most explosive eruption um in uh in the united states in the lower 48 uh, united states uh happened certainly in the in the 20th century and uh and it was a, a devastating eruption um it killed 57 people and had a lasting impact on the landscape that people can still see today if they go out there and uh, you can still see felled trees, you can still get to the place where there is no forest, um, you can still see the deposits. It's a it's a really uh, remarkable um, event that is still impacting the landscape and people today.
0: Okay, so to, to take the title of, of our topic here, how exactly does one misplace a mountain? How can Mount St. Helens not be where we expect it to be?
1: Yeah, well, so I mentioned that it's a member of the Cascade Range of uh, Volcanoes. It's a cascade chain, and if you look on a map, it's just this line of volcanoes that are going north-south, basically parallel to the coast. And uh, Mount St. Helens is an exception to that. It is um, uh, It is to the left, I guess, or towards the ocean, Um, it's it's away from that chain. It does not really line up. And in fact, there's a volcano called Mount Adams that is right on that chain that is um, directly uh, on the same line as Mount St. Helens. And so um, there's some real questions has always been questions about, well, why is Mount St. Helens not geographically in this chain of volcanoes and uh, that's been that's been a question for um, for for a long time, and that that stems that idea idea, this chain. Um, there's a there's a simple explanation or a simple hypothesis that relates to plate tectonics, which is the um, at this point very well established theory that the surface of the Earth is consisted of a series of plates that move around relative to each other, and along the edges is where we get most of the earthquakes and most of the volcanoes on Earth. And in the case of the Pacific Northwest, there's a plate called the Juan de Fuca that's under the Pacific Ocean. That is going underneath the North American plate that um, Mount St. Helens is on top of, and as the Juan de Fuca plate goes down, part of it melts, and uh, some of that creates magma that rises to the surface. And the plate tectonic idea is that that melting happens Uh, just in a a fairly narrow area, and that's what gives us the chain, that uh, you only get magma production in a certain part of the uh, subduction zone system, and uh, Mount St. Helens is removed from where that theory says magma should be produced.
0: Okay, so... um I think at this point, we're going to uh, just end this segment so that we have a little extra time in the next segment to talk about uh, what's going on here. We have a lot more to say, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
2: The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station, submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 88.5, 1061, or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org.
0: Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Seth Moran, Principal USGA Seismologist at the Cascades Volcano Observatory, and we're talking about... Mount St. Helen is not where it's supposed to be. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders, and Rick, as our resident geologist, why don't you start us off?
3: Oh, thank you, Jay. (laughs) Basalt is my middle name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I thought it was Millicent. (laughs) Yeah, Millicent. I thought it was Magma. (laughs) That's that's only when I'm hot. Uh, (laughs) I know, it's,
3: it's too many, it's just way too much, too much. Uh, Seth, uh, I was uh, uh, had the joy of going up uh, uh, along McKinsey Highway up into the Cascades, where there's that fifty square mile area of basalt that uh, actually went, it uh, attacked me and and uh, caused me great damage. Um, mm-hmm. And you you made the comment. Uh, in fact, I was uh, I flew over Mount St Helens and saw the. The the devastation on the north side just completely blown out, uh, and I saw Mount Adams. Uh, the the question I have you mentioned earlier in the opening segment that that a fairly narrow band of uh, of uh, plate melt as the Juan de Fuca plate uh, subducts underneath North America. How wide is that that melt zone? And
1: uh, theorized. Yeah, it's 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 a little. Um, it, I guess I'll 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 preface this by saying um, that nobody knows for sure. It's a it's it's you know we're not able to go down to the place where sure magma is sure. being created, and so uh, a lot of um, the theory rests upon observations like hey, you only see Earth, uh, volcanoes in the narrow band. So why is that? And then there's also uh, laboratory analyses. From uh, looking at rocks, geochemistry of <clears> rocks, <throat> and what happens to them when you melt them under different kinds of pressure conditions and temperature conditions um, that have kind of, and, and and looking at rocks that are likely compositions in the under uh, downgoing plate, and so where do you start getting uh, some fluids start start uh, coming out of that, and uh, and so the sort of the general understanding is that the the plate has to get to a certain depth. And the depth is around, um, I'm going to be uh, a, a metric scientist, 80 to 100 kilometers, which is between like 50 and 60 miles depth. And uh, the, the idea is that any depth shallower than that, the conditions uh, are not right for you know, sort of the temperatures that you would get for, for magma to, to be produced. And depths that are greater than that, you've kind of lost the source because it's all already been produced. All the magma's already been produced. Um and uh and so that that's the that's sort of the, the 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 first order picture for what's going on there. And so where Mount St. Helens is, uh the the Fuca Plate is too shallow from in that theory, is too shallow to be at a place oh, where it okay. is capable of producing a lot of magma. Okay, Ed.
4: Yeah. Um Seth, you mentioned that uh Uh, earlier that uh, Mount St. Helens is the uh, most explosive of the volcanoes um, in the Cascades. Um, Can you briefly tell us why some volcanoes are um, categorized as explosive as to the other ones that we've been seeing lately on TV, uh, the Canary Islands on the island of, I believe it's La Palma, and then... um, which i would characterize kind of as an oo- oozer <laughs> um so can you explain those
1: please sure yeah i guess uh, first thing i should just uh clarify that there's other volcanoes that have erupted explosively in the cascades uh that that bigger eruptions you know, uh, and, and the biggest of those of course is crater lake about seven thousand years ago um that that shed hummus and ash uh, over most of the pacific northwest um, and then there's another volcano, Glacier Peak, which has produced uh, an eruption um, that was several times larger than Mount St. Helens about 13,000 years ago. But it is right now the most frequently active volcano, and it has featured a number of very large explosive eruptions. And that's sort of the most important thing um, as far as what is going on there. The the primary uh, uh, factor that controls the kind of eruption that you have is Chemistry it is the chemistry of the rocks and, and, and uh, the chemistry of the gases, uh, how much gases are being produced. And uh, at Mount St. Helens, the dominant rock that's erupted is uh, something that's called site, which is, uh, has a lot of silica. And, and silica is, is the, so the dominant building block of, of most elements, most rocks. Um, and it's you know, silica dioxide and in its simplest form is glass, window glass. And the more silica dioxide you have, uh, the stickier the rock becomes. And, uh, and so it doesn't, you know, you don't get the sort of classic Hawaii style lava flows that are meandering like rivers around the landscape. Instead, you get these really blocky things that don't move very much. But what makes them potentially dangerous is that they can also retain a lot more gas. And, uh, cause gas, it's harder for gas bubbles to sort of burst through. And so you can get these big pockets of gas building up and building up and building up. And uh, and so that's what drives explosivity is the ability of gas to build gas pressures to build um, and uh, and then eventually to to, uh, to get released. So like you mentioned La Palma earlier, um, Rick. You did, and uh, that was as a really good analog for what you saw uh, at on uh, um, the Mackenzie Highway, um, where there is this large basalt field, and that did not start with a huge explosive eruption there was probably explosions like what had been happening at La Palma. And, uh, but the primary thing that is left behind and that, that, you know, sort of the primary thing that people have been focused on when that was happening was the lava flow. And uh, it would have been spectacular, just like the La Palma, you know, spectacular and tragic because uh, there's a lot of houses and uh, that are being destroyed and farms that are being destroyed. Um, but, uh, you know, th- th- those are, those are, um you know, very easy to see at night and, uh, and things like that. So if they're happening in a place where there's not uh, impact to people or infrastructure, um, they're very spectacular. And that, those are formed from basalt, your middle name, and uh, basalt <laughs> has a lot less silica in it. And so it's a lot more fluid uh, for one thing, so it flows around, but also it allows gas bubbles to escape much more readily. And so you don't get these big buildups of uh, gas pressure that can drive huge explosive eruptions.
4: All right. <laughs> and can the nature of the volcanoes change over time in, in terms of whether it's the gas is you know escaping or whether it's building up?
1: It's a, that's a super good question. And, and um, the, the general rule in, in geology is that the, the past is the best guide for the future, that what's happened in the past is the most likely thing to happen in the future. And so what we try to work with... Um, with volcanoes is to map out as best we can what's happened in the past, and that's the playbook for what's likely to happen in the future. And in many many cases, volcanoes do tend to have the same kind of uh, chemistry, the same kind of uh, magma coming up time over time. And a really good example of that is is not Rainier, which has erupted a kind of andesite um, that's a little bit less sticky than site. Uh, but also has not, and is also not very. You know, it's not been very explosive, and it's it's done that time over time without a lot of variability. Mount St. Helens is really interesting because it had a period of time where it erupted basalt, and it produced a lava flow that we would think we would recognize as Hawaiian style. It would have looked like Hawaii. And there's a lava tube that you can go into now that uh, that was part of the feeder system for that lava flow. And uh, what in the heck? Is Mount St. Helens doing erupting basalt, and that is a pretty interesting question that is you know, still out there. It means that Mount St. Helens has a more complicated playbook, and uh, when it wakes up again, um, there's a wider range of possibilities that geologists have to entertain in terms of thinking about what could happen.
0: Okay, Seth, uh, Ed just led me into my question because it sounds to me like Mount St. Helens is a fairly big-time troublemaker. Um, it's not where it's supposed to be. It's not doing the kinds of things it's supposed to do. Uh, and it's messing around with geologists' theories about how things are supposed to work, which is the worst of all. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what your theory or what the, some of the competing theories are that explain why Mount hates St. Helen seems to be so unique and then my my sort of follow-up question that you can deal with at the same time is are there other examples of volcanoes that seem to be atypical like Mount St. Helen does
1: well yeah so I, I guess I'll preface everything I'm going to say by uh, I'm a seismologist so my specialty is working with earthquakes and with with uh, sort of geophysics and uh, a really important part of the answer to your questions from geochemistry and so I I will do my best to characterize what I understand of the geochemistry, but um, there will be things that I won't be able to say quite uh, quite as authoritatively. Um, So, uh, you know, first off, it's really cool to have theories poked at. And it's fascinating to have this pretty striking example of something that doesn't fit. And that just, you know, raises all kinds of questions. and, And, you know, questions are fun. That's where science starts. And the group that I was involved with, uh, there's a, a group of investigators that got together about a decade ago now and started um, thinking about some of these questions with Mount St. Helens. Why is it where it is? And how, how come it's been so eruptive over the last 4,000 years relative to other volcanoes? Can we see something that might tell us uh, about that? And uh, that, that group Uh, formed a a coalition that got funding from the National Science Foundation. Uh, It's called IMUSH, which stands for uh, Investigating Magma Under St. Helens. And uh, that group consisted of um, geophysicists like myself and uh, not just seismologists, but also people that look at uh, magnetics, magnetic properties of the Earth, and then also uh, geochemists and petrologists who were looking more closely at the rocks that have erupted out of Mount St. Helens and doing some very careful analyses to make some statements about where those rocks came from. Where where was the magma that produced those rocks? Where did it come from um, in terms of depth? And uh, from, the, from the geophysics side of things, one of the really kind of unexpected and maybe tantalizing uh, results is that um, they're uh, typically what we look for when, we um, want to see signs that there's a place that has uh, the possibility of producing magma is, is um, we like to see a couple of, of layers in the earth and uh, one of these layers we don't see beneath Mount St. Helens and we do see it in other, in other, uh, beneath other volcanoes but we just don't see it underneath Mount St. Helens and um, we think that that means and, and what that layer is is it's the boundary between uh, the crust and the mantle it's called the moho and uh, we just we don't see a really strong signal there. And so what we think is that um, that is one indicator that the magma that's feeding Mount St. Helens is not rising straight up from where it's produced. And if you go to standard geology textbooks or you go online and look for pictures of uh, volcanoes in subduction zone systems, you will see these basically these straight lines that go from where magma is produced all the way up to the volcano that's erupting. And uh, what we think we found is evidence that that's not the case at Mount St. Helens, that the magma that is uh, feeding it is probably coming from somewhere maybe closer to Mount Adams. And if that's the case, then that maybe starts to make a little bit more sense about, you know, that Mount St. Helens actually isn't violating one rule that, you know, that magma that's producing it is actually coming from where it's supposed to be. But then there's some other questions about, well, why the heck is that magma not just going straight up? And why is it taking this dog leg left and then going over and up to Mount St. Helens?
0: Okay, Rick. Yeah, Seth, uh, you
3: mentioned that uh, the source of the the, uh, magma is uh, Juan de Fuca uh, plate, uh, subducting. Uh, Most of... uh, uh, well, most of California, Washington, Oregon, and Western British Columbia are what um, I was taught as exotic terrain. so is, is the uh, underlying uh, fracture uh, plate that these states are sitting on, particularly where Mount St Helens is is it so fractured that you've got maybe conduits that are that are feeding, Uh, not only Mount St. Helens, but maybe some future volcano in this area?
1: Well, that's certainly uh, a a thing that people have looked at as far as whether the structures of the plate, uh, the Juan de Fuca plate that's going underneath, if that's at all influencing what we see at the surface, not only in the form of of volcanoes, but also of of seismicity um, in, in the crust or where earthquakes are located. Um, and so there's, you know, there's ideas that there might have been a seamount that went down at some point and that's impacting things. Um, n- nobody's really found yet definitive evidence that that's the case. But there is some segmentation in the Cascades. It's not just this continuous chain. There's places where the, um, the, the lining up of volcanoes changes from north-northwest to north-south to north-northeast. And there's places where the, in the, along the Cascade Range where uh, there's been more or less magmas come out of the ground. And so in Washington, um, north of Mount St. Helens, there's really only stratovolcanoes. There's Glacier Peak, there's Mount Baker, and there's Mount Rainier. There's not much else, not, not many other places where magma's come out of the ground. But if you go south of Mount St. Helens, and particularly if you go south of Mount Hood, there's magnets come out of the ground lots of places, not just at the single stratovolcanoes, volcanoes, but also in places like that lava flow that you saw uh, at McKenzie Pass. And so it, you know, over time, over like hundreds of thousands of years, there's been a lot more magnets come out of the ground in Oregon than there has been in Washington. And so there's some real questions there about what's driving that. Is that because less magma is being produced by the subducting plate in Washington versus in Oregon? Or is that because there's some kind of structural thing that's going on either with the underlying plate or with the North American plate that's trapping the magma in Washington and not letting it erupt relative to how much is coming out in Oregon? And uh, the, that, that's uh, an, another kind of big question that, that is um, out there still being uh, sort of tossed around in terms of um, how are you gonna go about addressing that as well as uh, what people think is is the, is the uh, answer.
4: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, um, Seth, you mentioned before as a seismologist that you study earthquakes and volcanoes. Um, the Cascade Range, um, I guess, I don't think most people in this country think of that as an earthquake zone, um, but it's volcanic, obviously. And then I think of the San Andreas, which to my knowledge is particularly earthquake-prone, but not volcanic. Um do some places in the world, uh, or is there a place on the West Coast where you kind of get the worst of both worlds?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, seduction zones are the place where you get uh, both. And, um, the, you know, Japan is a great example of that, that you've got, you know, um, Uh, volcanoes like Mount Fuji and uh, situations like back in 2014, where there was another volcano called Antake that erupted kind of out of the blue and killed over 70 people. Um, And also they get huge earthquakes like the Tohoku earthquake from 2011. And in the Pacific Northwest, we have the subduction zone setting, which is giving us our volcanoes. It also turns out that it has, produced as recently as the year seventeen hundred a massive earthquake. It was a magnitude nine plus nine point one, I think is what is a modeled uh earthquake um in seventeen hundred. And we know about that because it created a tsunami that went all the way across the Pacific Ocean and hit Japan and killed a few people and it was noted as in a in a in, in a couple of written records. And then there's also geologic evidence. Uh, that um, was indicating that there have been large, large, uh, large earthquakes, and that geologic evidence indicates that we should expect those kinds of earthquakes on average about every 450 to 500 years. Mm-hmm. And those would have huge impact uh, up and down uh, southern British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, northern California, um, and then we also have the volcanoes, and you know they're, they're symbiotic; they they both relate to the same system, and so. Um, any place that you have a subduction zone, you've got both of those. And you know, go up to Alaska, the 1964 earthquake, uh, the, the, the nine point, well, I shouldn't really p- come up with the name, but I, it was 9.4, 9.5. It was a huge earthquake. And Alaska also has, uh, um, lots and lots of volcanoes, including the one that produced the biggest eruption in the world, uh, back in 1912, the Katmai, uh, eruption. And, uh, and so they, they go hand in hand. Um, the people who are most subject to volcanic hazards, um, you know, I guess w- one nice thing is that um, uh, you know if you're close to a volcano, you're not as close as you uh, could be to the earthquake source. And by that I mean like if you're on the coast, you're a lot closer slash potentially on top of where uh, the fault is that's producing the large earthquake. Um, the volcanoes are going to be inboard a little ways, and so folks that are close to the volcanoes are not going to get hit as hard by the large earthquake.
0: That makes me feel only a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Seth, we make a habit of giving our guests the last word on the show. So why do you think that knowing about Mount St. Helen is relevant in today's world?
1: Uh, Well, you know, we, we um, locally, have the, that question um, with regards to, you know, why should we worry about volcanoes when we have this magnitude 9.2 and um, what we've experienced, there was an eruption of Mount St. Helens in 2004 that was very minor in terms of the kind of thing that it did the kind of eruption that it had. It was only hazardous if you were working in the crater, but for about a month, It had Washington and a good chunk of Oregon paralyzed with people who were just extraordinarily interested. And the Forest Service had thousands of people that were making their way to the volcano to see, you know, their one shot at seeing an explosion. And so I guess, you know, one thing is that even a small eruption uh, has a large consequence, if for no other reason than people are fascinated by it. And it is fascinating to watch volcanoes in action, to see new rock being created to see the energy and the power of nature. It's the same kind of thing that I experienced when I watched thunderstorms. It's like, this is something bigger than all of us. That's not controllable by humans. And it's just um, awesome to watch. And, and also, you know, uh, 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 awful to watch at the same time in the sense of full of awe. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think there's a reason why... Uh, Volcanoes captured the the imagination of people, and so that's one of the reasons why Mount St Helens matters. And when I was growing up uh, in the uh, '70s, and I was reading textbooks that talked about the Cascade Range is probably not going to have an eruption again, um, or you know it, it hasn't happened one for one in a while, and it probably will again. And then Mount St Helens erupted, and and the lesson for me was that um, here in the lower 48, not counting Alaska and Hawaii. We absolutely can have eruptions, and they can happen any time. And Mount St. Helens woke up really fast in 1980. It went from the first earthquake to the first explosion in seven days. In uh, 2004, it went from the first earthquake to the first explosion in eight days. That's not a lot of time. Right. And so the, um, in both cases, it was a little bit of a scramble to uh, to respond. Um, we did better in 2004 because we had more of a network out there. Um but, um it's really you know it it's it's a an important thing for society to remember that even though the volcano that you're looking at right now is calm, it's peaceful, it's beautiful, it's surrounded by wilderness, it's got all kinds of incredible things to go look and see, that can change tomorrow and um and so it's important for society to be ready for that, and that's where the observatories come in um, that the USGS operates is that it's kind of our job to be the firefighters that are ready to go uh, at a moment's notice.
0: All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
2: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes our 437th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp-Zapital. My name is Jay Swords, and we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Seth Moran, Principal USGA Seismologist at the Cascades Volcano Observatory, who talked with us about Mount St. Helen is not where it's supposed to be. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hutza Pula Nala," peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.